Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is June the 14th. Uh, 2022. It's a lovely warm day in San Francisco. Earlier today, we did a show with the British journalist Oliver Bullo. Uh, he has a, a really important new book out just published in the US called Butler to the World, How Britain Helps the World's Worst People Launder Money, Commit Crimes and Get Away with Anything. And we, in our conversation, we talked about Britain as this butler. We talked about Jeeves, this fictional character out of P.G. Woodhouse. And of course, to have a Jeeves, an efficient butler, you also need an incompetent upper class, which seems to be captured in the current British government of Boris Johnson. We're going to be talking incompetence and upper class today with my guest, Simon Cooper, who is the author both of Chums and Vasa. He's quite a prolific journalist. Uh, and his new book, Chums, How a Tiny Cast of Oxford Tories took over the UK, I think is, is, is appropriate reading uh, with the Bullo book about Butler uh, to the world. And he had a really interesting piece. Uh, Simon's been on the show before. We had, had a really interesting piece last week um, in the FT. He's also a columnist at the FT comparing football, uh, soccer, what Europeans call uh, uh, football, uh, with politics, comparing... Uh, two books he's written recently, one on Barcelona, the football club, which is called Barca, and his other book, Chums. And I'm thrilled that uh, Simon is joining us from Madrid in Spain. Simon, um, Butler to the world and uh, Jeeves and Johnson, you went to university with the Johnsons of the world, um, and you don't think particularly highly of them, do you? Do you think they're a, a generally a rather incompetent lot? I think they're incompetent, and I also think they don't particularly have a mission. They're not quite sure what they want to do with their power. They've known since age eight, I think, that they were going to rule the UK, and Oxford University for them was a preparation for that, and they learned the debating skills at the Oxford Union, uh, the ad hominem attacks, the little jokes. And there's a kind of purposelessness to this generation. That is a, a desire to reclaim the kind of grandeur of the Britain of their forefathers, uh, the Britain of world wars and empire. And it's in this, they feel they're living in a rather tin pot age, a kind of tame vegetarian age. And there's nothing particularly they know what to do with it. And the comparison, Simon, you make with football, specifically with uh, the, the club Barcelona, is that um, football is, in your language, a meritocracy or can be, whereas politics isn't. Compare your two books on Barcelona and on the Oxford elite of Boris Johnson and his chums. Yeah, so I spent the pandemic writing these two books almost simultaneously. You know, there were days when I would switch from one book to the other book. You know, I worked seven days a week for about 18 months. I really enjoyed it. And I realized in the end, I was writing about two so-called elites. But one was a real elite, FC Barcelona, which when I began writing the book, at least, was one of the, the best football clubs in the world. And the other was a bit of a fake elite, the people who'd been through Oxford and gone on to run the country. So they had this elitist institution, Oxford, to their name. But when I compared not just Oxford, but also the American so-called elite universities with Barcelona, 
Barcelona was so much more demanding. I mean, in the academy, millions of boys, of course, around the world want to become their professional footballers. FC Barcelona takes just a handful. Every year they kick out probably about half the boys in the academy and replace them with kids, often drawn from outside Spain, who are among the very best kid players in the world. So it's ruthless, constant selection. And, you know, even at the age of 17, you can never be sure that you're going to even going to become a professional footballer. And so if you're in the Barcelona first team, at the end of all this, you have to be in one, one in the world and you have to stay there. You know, if you perform badly for a few months, you're out. They don't care. There is no CV in soccer. There is no nepotism. There is no, well, I know the coach. Whereas in universities like Oxford, which is the focus of my book Chums, but also Harvard, for example, being the child of an alumnus, the child of a donor, a child of a faculty member, having parents who can pay for someone in the US more than the UK to write your application essay can make all the difference. Once you're in, you can coast. So Boris Johnson at Oxford got by in a joke by one of his tutors on zero hours a week. Sure, that's a slight exaggeration. Many, you know, got by on just four or five in the 80s. And then at 21, your education is over. And you head down to London. There was no tradition of conservatism in those days of going to graduate school. You felt you'd have the so-called best education in the world. You go down to London, you meet your old school chums, your old university chums. And pretty soon you're in the House of Commons. And your path to power is very short and clear. And once in power, constant performance is not required, as, as we're able to witness in the Johnson government. We've done a number of shows on this issue of meritocracy. Uh, we had Daniel Markovitz, who's a Yale law professor. Uh, he has a book out, The Meritocracy Trap. He's quite critical of an American demo uh, meritocracy. Whereas the economist journalist Adrian Waldridge, an old friend of the show, he has a new book out, The Aristocracy of Talent, which is a defense of meritocracy. Can universities, Simon, create a, a credible, healthy, meritocratic political system? You use the, the American and the British systems as models which we should avoid. Are there ones that work, perhaps Singapore or even China? I mean, meritocracy, I'm reminded of what Gandhi supposedly said about Western civilization. It would be a good idea. You know, it would be nice if you really did have meritocratic universities that produced a meritocratic elite. Of course, we're very aware that we don't. And that, for example, 43% of white students at Harvard are either legacies or children of donors and faculty or athletes, recruited athletes. So it, it doesn't work as a meritocracy. The comparison I like to make in the book is not so much with China or Singapore, but with the social democracies of the world, where they don't really even attempt meritocratic selection at age 18. I mean, in Canada, there are some universities of higher status than others in Australia. But broadly speaking, Canada, Australia, the Scandinavian countries, Germany and the Netherlands. And I went to university in Germany as well. I'd gone to school in the Netherlands. So I saw my school friends progress through Dutch universities. You can be pretty much, you graduate from high school. You can go to any university. Malcolm Gladwell says he recalls as a Canadian 18 year old applying to the University of Toronto, you know, in a kind of 10 minutes after dinner one evening. And it didn't seem to matter. It never particularly mattered. And I think these social democracies end up with a better system because you're selecting your elite, not at age 17, 18, like in the US, UK, 
you start to select them in adulthood. It doesn't really matter which university you go to. And then in your early 20s, you start building your career, and there you have to prove yourself. Your previous CV isn't as relevant. And so a lot of people who end up in the leadership of these countries, the political, the business, the cultural elites, these are people who've often come from quite ordinary backgrounds. They haven't been separated from the rest of the population from age 17. They haven't been handed a lifelong membership card of the elite like people at Oxford or Ivy League universities are. And so I think that leads to more genuine competition in adulthood. And so I think the social democracies, although they don't tend to have the elite universities, the top university rankings of the US and UK do, I think they have much more healthy, fairer societies. And yet, Simon, you're an example of somebody who went to Oxford, came from Holland. You're not from a fancy family. You didn't go to Eton. Here we have a photo of you from 1989 with a, a fuller head of hair. Uh, aren't you a model of how meritocracy can work? Presumably you passed the Oxford exam. It was hard to get into. You've prospered. You've become a prolific writer, author. You're one of the world's leading authorities uh, on, uh, on soccer. Uh, aren't you a model for how meritocracy can work? No, I mean, I came from a I had a very straight path to Oxbridge. I mean, you know, I'm, I didn't go to Eton. I didn't go to a boarding school. But my father had been a graduate student at Cambridge. He was a colonial boy who came from South Africa, but from a wealthy white South African family. Of course, the whites of South Africa monopolized the resources of the country during apartheid. And so I grew up in his home as a university professor. I had a PhD. I mean, of course, I ended up at Oxford. It really wasn't that difficult. You know, I worked hard for a few months around my school exams, age 18. I was at a state school and I didn't actually take the Oxford exam because I realized, helped by my father who understood universities because he worked in one, that my school gave no support at all to preparing for the, at the time, specialized Oxford exam. And I understood that people at Eton and at other private schools would have months and months of training in this exam. So it wouldn't work to my advantage. And I was able to understand the system and game it because of the house I came from. So I found that Oxford was not a kind of either you were Etonian or you came from an ordinary family. I found that the divide was between the upper class, the kind of boarding school class, which is about 1% of the UK population goes to boarding school, and then the upper middle class, people like me, people whose parents were academics or lawyers or doctors, that kind of thing. And there were very few working class people. There were very few people from the mass of the population you know, in the 80s when I went, most, only one in eight British people or so went to university at all. So most people had parents, most people in the country came from families with no experience of university. But those people were not at Oxford or Cambridge in those days. So I, I reject the idea that if you were not an Etonian, if you were not a private school, then you came up the hard scrabble way. I certainly didn't, and nor did almost anyone I encountered at university. Um, lots of news about the ongoing crisis in, in the UK. Uh, one headline in, in your FT newspaper, Britain's poorest left to bear the brunt of the squeeze on the cost of living. Surprise, surprise, all associated with an, another crisis, ongoing crisis, political crisis in the UK over Partygate, over more fantasy by Boris Johnson. Johnson will, of course, be most remembered as the architect of Brexit, in which he managed to convince... I think mostly poorer working class British people that uh, membership of the EU was a bad thing. 
What is it about men like Johnson with their aristocratic pretensions, not that even he is an aristocrat, that makes him attractive outside the aristocracy, outside of people who went to Oxford? I think that there's a deep British reflex of deference to the male public schoolboy with an Oxford veneer. You can also use fancy words and in Johnson's case, drop Latin and Greek quotes. And there's a reflex that says someone like him or someone like his uh, predecessor, but one David Cameron, who was at Eton with Johnson, at Eton and Oxford with Johnson, they knew each other, they never particularly liked each other, that people like Cameron and Johnson are born to rule. And of course, a lot of people resent them, resent that caste. But many of those people at the same time feel, well, you know, it's natural that a man like that should be prime minister. That's sort of how the country is meant to work. And Johnson is the fifth Eton and Oxford prime minister just since World War II. So it's a very kind of old British tradition. Now, Johnson is funny, which in a country which has a very sort of complacent political culture where nothing very terrible has happened inside the country for hundreds of years. People like to be amused by their politicians. I mean, this is a country which has had no revolution or civil war, invasion or famine since the 17th century. So why not go for a funny man? He's posh. You know, he's not the poshest person in Britain, but he's posher than 99% of the population. And he went to Oxford, so he could say, oh, I'm not just a funny man. That's, you know, what he's suggesting when he quotes Latin. I also studied for this, so I know how to run a country. I think that pretense has been exposed by his three years in power. His approval ratings are very low. doesn't seem to have any kind of policies. He doesn't read his briefs. He didn't um, take the pandemic very seriously when it began. He uh, launched Brexit without thinking through any of the issues involved. But he kind of... A man like that is very well placed to kid, to con a lot of the British population. In the same way that Donald Trump, you know, plays on this very different American archetype of the brilliant businessman, which is what Trump was pretending to be. Johnson plays the role of the gentleman ruler, which is a British archetype. And they both seem to enjoy not just playing the role, but acknowledging that they're playing a role. Neither of them, I don't think, make much of an effort to appear real. Let's Let's compare and contrast then Barca. You wrote this book on the rise and fall of the club that built modern football. You compare and contrast Barca with Oxford, with Boris Johnson's Oxford. I remember seeing Barcelona, the football team that is, in 1984 in the Cup Winners' Cup when they they came to my club in London. And they were very undistinguished, a very poor team, rather poor sporting attitudes as well. What has happened at Barcelona? that have revolutionized the club or what had happened? Is it, can we all attribute it to the great Dutchman, Johan Cruyff? Um, I know he's a hero of yours, Simon, or is there something more, prof- something more structural that happened at Barcelona that allowed the club to reinvent itself as this bastion, this p- paragon of meritocracy? I think the two things came together. Johan Cruyff, who you just showed, who, you know, he was the hero of my childhood. I grew up in the Netherlands, football mad, playing football, of course. And a working a class hero. His mother cleaned the toilets at, at, uh, at Ajax. So certainly the opposite of a Boris Johnson, right? Yes, a man who grew up at the bottom of society after his father died. His father was a grocer. 
died when Krauf was 12. They descended to the, from the low middle class to the Dutch working class. He really did fight his way up. And Krauf was a genius. He wasn't just the best footballer of the 1970s, but he was also a man who rethought football. He reinvented football. So I call him the, the Einstein or the Freud of football. He comes up with a totally new paradigm. And in the 60s and 70s, you know, from his late teens on, starting in Ajax Amsterdam, which is a club in a country that never meant anything in football, he invents a new kind of game, which is total attack. They end up calling it total football. We play in the other team's half. We press, we pass around rapid fire. Our players change positions, and it works. He goes to Barcelona as a player in 1973 for five years. Later in 1988, he returns to Barcelona as a coach. That's four years after you saw a very mediocre Barcelona team in London. And Barcelona had always been quite a second, well, most of the time had been quite a second-rate club in Spain's second city, the second city of a second-tier European country. And Kraus says, we're going to be the best club in the world, and we're going to do it my way. We're going to play the football that I invented in the 60s and 70s, and we're going to impose it here, me as coach. And we're going to impose it on every team from the under eights to the first team. We're going to play my system. And they do. And in 1992, they win the European Cup, the Champions League. It's the first time in the club's history that they've won the biggest prize in football. And he kind of leaves a mark. He changes the club forever. So Krauf, you know, was sacked in 1996. He fought with everyone. He was an impossible man. He fought with me as well. And he died in 2016. He was a uh, a terrible chain smoker. I think he gave up at the end, but he still died of lung cancer. And he has left his mark on the, on the club to this day. The club, while I was writing the book, sort of collapsed. So I began writing the book about, it was a book about greatness, about the club of Johan Krebs to Lionel Messi, the greatest footballer of all time. And as I was writing it, I realized, hang on, this whole thing is collapsing. And so it was like writing a book about the Roman Empire while the barbarians were already inside the gates, you know, circa 400 AD. And so it's the rise and fall, but it was this kind of beautiful and brilliant edifice. It's maybe the, the best creation ever in football because they didn't just win many prizes. They won playing the most beautiful football. I think you'll agree that many of us had ever seen. Yeah, and what, thinking about what you wrote, what struck me about Barcelona at its pomp, at its height, was it wasn't a brand or a, or, 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 um, or an experiment built around a, a, a manager. There were managers, obviously the, the Manchester City manager now grew up and he epitomized the Barcelona spirit. But there was no Sir Alex Ferguson or even Mourinho at, at Barcelona, wasn't it? Where did it come from then? I mean, as you say, Cruyff was a difficult man. I once met him in a in a in a Amsterdam restaurant. He was incredibly charming, actually. But I'm sure he has his moments. He could be very charming. He could be very charming. Um, it must have. Who, who sort of implemented um, the, the, the Cruyff revolution? There's a headline today about the Barcelona president Joan Laporta calling for stricter rules on state-owned clubs. But the the admin people at Barca, as you say today, seem as, as incompetent as, as anyone running major football clubs. So where did it come from? How did, how did Cruyff implement this revolution? Yeah, I think one thing about sports clubs is they're usually very badly run, especially soccer clubs. So there's no meritocracy off the field. There's no meritocracy in the boardroom. I mean, Barca has a kind of populist democracy. The president 
president is elected, usually the president makes me can't fulfill, has none of the uh, knowledge, wisdom, and foresight to fulfill his role. So the genius, the meritocracy wasn't there. Craig created a school of football. You know, he had followers, and his chief follower was the man you just alluded to, Pep Guardiola. So Pep Guardiola, who has gone on to become the most influential coach in football of our time, now at Manchester City, Pep is an 18-year-old at, at Barca when Craig identifies him playing for the youth teams and says, take that skinny kid who can't run or tackle out of the youth team and putting him in the first team because Pep can see the game. That's what Craig cared about. And so they have a meeting of minds from then on. Pep becomes Craig's kind of man on the field, his representative on turf, as it were, uh, communicating Craig's ideas from a very early age to the other players. And then Pep becomes a coach, and he becomes a Craigian coach. But as he understands, football evolves every year, it improves every year, it improves almost by the month, because, you know, if Barcelona lose to Bayern Munich, they start thinking, well, what are Bayern doing that we're not doing? And they copy and they imitate and improve. So football keeps improving. So the way Guardiola phrased it is Craigfield Cathedral. And my job and the job of everyone who comes after Craig is to renovate the cathedral and keep it new and perfect. And so Guardiola would update the tactics, update the systems, but always working with these Craigfield principles. And many of the um, people who worked, who played at Barca in the 90s, and even one of the interpreters, Jose Mourinho, and the current coach of Spain, Luis Enrique, who was a player at the time, they have gone on to become the most influential generation of coaches in the game today. Uh, Louis van Gaal, who is uh, an enemy of Krebs, like so many people, but he too had grown up at Ajax, absorbing these Krebsian ideals. He became coach of Barcelona, so there's whole schools, and Guardiola and van Gaal exported those ideas to Germany. They were both head coaches by Munich. And really what's happened in the end is that all of football, all of European football, Western European football is leading, has copied Krebsian ideas about how to coach young players. Essentially, you only coach with the ball. The only thing that matters is the geometry of the pass and also how to play football, which is the Krebsian idea we play in their half, instant one-touch diagonal passing, exchange of positions, football as geometry. So that's how... Germany play, that's how Italy play when they won the European Championship last year. And that's how even England, historically the most backward of the big European football countries, is starting to play. You see that younger English players like Raheem Sterling, Phil Foden, or uh, Sacco at Arsenal, they look like Barcelona players. These people are little guys who can pass. So there's hope then, Simon, not just on the football field, but also perhaps in politics. You wrote an interesting piece your your FD columns are always excellent. You wrote one earlier this month about why the British monarchy needs to go Dutch. Um, let's go back to Cruyff and his politics. He was a very political thinker. Is there something social democratic about the revolution that he um, pioneered at Barcelona? What's the politics of it? Because uh, you know, the, the the politics of major football clubs like Barcelona or Real Madrid or Manchester United are hardly democratic, are they? Well, Barcelona is and Madrid are two, almost certainly the two democracies in top-class football in that there are about 150,000 members of each club and they elect the president every six years at Barca. So you have real elections 
which are fought out with much more passion and much more coverage than political elections in Catalonia. What are the politics? Well, Krev himself had very simplistic politics, sort of uh, right-wing low tax, didn't like paying taxes. And that was the thing he, he once tried to lobby the Dutch Queen about. She said, go and talk to my ministers. Is that it's, why you fell out with him? Uh, that's not why we fell out with him. He always felt he was taking, being taken advantage of. He felt I was taking advantage of him. But um, the politics of FC Barcelona, I, I, I discuss my falling out with Crow for the book, but it's very, it's very painful, so let's not relive it again here. The politics of FC Barcelona are about Catalan nationalism. And so Catalonia, as you know, is a region in Spain. Many people in it feel it should be a state, you know, a bit like the Scottish issue. Uh, and it's not, it's just a region. And so a lot of Catalan pride, and a lot of Catalan opposition to Madrid has historically been brought into the football club. So without a state, it's the football club that represents Catalan nationalism, Catal Catalanisme. And that was all fine. You know, Catalanisme in Catalonia is like motherhood and apple pie in the US. Everyone likes it, everyone is for it. But in the last 10 years, it's become quite divisive because, you know, just like Britain has been polarized by Brexit and the US by Trump, in Catalonia, there's now a divide between people who are pushing for independence, independentistas, and people who want to stay part of Spain. And a lot of that fight is being fought out through the football club. So the new president, Joan Laporta, he actually sat in the Catalan parliament as an independentista, and there's worries among the kind of pro-union people in, at Barça that he will use the club to kind of promote Catalan independence, almost like if a Trumpist took over the New York Yankees and used it as a kind of promo platform for Trumpism. So uh, Barça, the biggest institution in Catalonia, risks sort of being riven by the arguments over independence, which are extremely painful in Catalonia. It's a bit like the US, you know, people storm out of Sunday lunch with family because they've had a fight about independence. Things are cooling off now compared to a couple of years ago, but it's still pretty heated. In your FTPs, you uh, you 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 talk about um, politics and leadership. Um, I mean, the equivalent in football, of course, is 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 being a manager. Um, does Britain need, or England at least, or Great Britain, do they need better management? Um, and and how do we create a meritocracy for that? I mean, of course, I, I mentioned earlier uh, Sir Alex Ferguson. He wrote a book with the Sequoia venture capitalist Mike Moritz on leadership. Um, he's Scottish, of course, and he's a very rare breed of successful British manager. Most of the great soccer managers are from overseas. The uh, Ancelotti, for example, who won the Champions League this year, Mourinho, who maybe passed his prime. Is there a comparison between being a great football manager and being a great politician? I think there is, and it's less about this charisma or motivational skills that people go on about when they talk about sports managers. Because when you're managing people who are so good at their sport that they're playing for FC Barcelona or Manchester United, you don't really need to motivate them. These people have motivated themselves. That's how they got to where they are. And they motivate themselves every day. You need to, you're more a convener, more a chairperson. And I think it's similar in politics. Again, Voters get very carried away by charisma and entertainment. I wish people would elect more boring politicians 
because it strikes me increasingly that just like a sports manager has a big staff now, so people think, oh, the manager won that game. Well, no, I mean, the, you know, the goalkeeper's coach or the defensive coach or the athletics coaches may have been more significant in the success of the team. So if you're now managing a club like Barcelona, you're convening a staff of dozens of people who are specialists, who coach your players. Your players may barely see you. The manager is the kind of face of the team, just like the prime minister or the president is the face of the government. That's the person who does the press conferences and explains successes and failures, usually in a self-justificatory way. But impacts on results, I'm very skeptical that the coach or the prime minister is that significant. I think people doing that role well, and Ancelotti is a good example, are often people who can listen. So tell me, you know, data coach, athletics coach, defensive coach, what you're seeing, everybody reports, players tell me how you would like to play. Let's all listen to this. I make the decisions only with input from people who know better than me. And running a country, if done well, is very similar. You know, the president is not going to be an expert on climate change, on Ukraine, on nuclear energy. What the president needs to do is listen to experts, uh, ask about costs and benefits, short and long-term effects. The president, in the end, has to make the decisions. But the best way to do so is by listening very hard to multiple views, including people you don't like, people you don't agree with. Now, this is not the Boris Johnson model of leadership. And in a sense, politicians don't get punished for their mistakes in the same way that football clubs get punished for mistakes. You know, if you lose three matches in football, the coach will get sacked, the fans will get very angry. In politics, a lot is appealing to your base, telling a good story, being funny on television. And so performance is not so much most voters are, most voters are judging you on the look, it's very hard to judge politicians. I mean, I'm not, I don't think the US has an energy strategy, but you know, I live usually in France. Does France have a smart energy strategy that equips it for the next 20 years? Are France's educational reforms intelligent? Well, it will take many years to see. Emmanuel Macron was on this show a few years ago. Are you essentially a, a sort of a technocratic Macronist? I mean, are you talking about the need for Carlo Ancelotti-style politicians who, as you say, listen, who don't ruffle a lot of feathers, who are in the background, essentially? Uh, who would? I mean, Macron hasn't exactly been successful in France, has he? Um, I mean, it's been a, a crazy time with the pandemic and now the war. I would say that Macron has mostly been quite a successful crisis manager. I mean, he, there hasn't been many long-term policies. They have made the French labor market much more flexible. Uh, unemployment in France, like in many other countries, is now down. But in France, that's really quite exceptional because they have 40 years of high unemployment. France uh, has very low inflation at the moment compared to other countries. I would say France has been moderately successful in a time of crisis. What Macron, Macron does listen. He does also have sort of more arrogance and more um, faith in his own star than I would like to see. But he's certainly the... more credible than Boris Johnson. I mean, he knows what he's talking about. Yeah, he's a serious about. person. He's a serious person. Boris Johnson is not a serious person. Boris Johnson is looking for headlines. He's an entertainer who's been thrust in a role for which he's ill-equipped. 
I was hearing from a different European prime minister who told a colleague the other week, with Boris Johnson, there's not much point talking to him because he hasn't read the dossier. So you say, well, what do you think about X and Y? And can you agree with my country on Z? Johnson doesn't know because he hasn't read the files. He hasn't thought about the issues. So all he can do is kind of be funny and make encouraging noises. So he is not a serious leader and Macron, like him or not, is. I have to say that when it comes to football management, though, um, in my experience, at least, is managers are enormously influential. When I think of my own club now, who has Antonio Conte as manager, he made such a dramatic difference to the team. All the supporters believe in him. Uh, surely management is important. It's more than just being Carlo Ancelotti. And Real Madrid is a unique place anyway. You have to be Carlo Ancelotti, but most clubs aren't like that. I mean, I wrote a book called Soconomics with the sports economist Stefan Schemanski, and we calculated that the role of the manager is vastly overrated. And it's overrated because the manager, as I say, is the face of the club. So you see him, you say fans believe in him. Yeah, he is the man speaking to the fans. English fans don't hear much from players. They don't hear much from other stuff. And they hear from the managers. So they start to associate results with the manager. We show in the new Soconomics, we keep updating the book, that Spurs has been very successful compared to its spending in the last 10 years or so. So it has spent very little net on transfers, your club, and it has performed much better than you'd expect. I think that the transfer policy at Spurs and the uh, choices of players and, and how much to pay them and when to let them go has been very smart. And that's largely not the job of a manager. So much in football in the last 20 years has been taken out of the hands of the manager. There's now, um, technical directors, commercial directors who, for example, negotiate with other clubs, uh, scouting directors who have key roles in deciding who the club will sign because typically the manager only lasts a year or two, so you don't want the manager making decisions about which player to buy for £50 million. So the role of the managers just isn't that significant, perhaps like the role of the, the prime minister. I mean, a, a very good education minister can leave a longer mark on a country than the prime minister. I also remember what Larry Summers once said. He said, in 2008, Obama becomes US president. Also in 2008, the smartphone goes sort of mainstream. And Summers says, which do you think had the bigger impact on people's lives? So I think the role of the individual in history, both in politics and in football, is typically overrated. Well, and I don't want to get into a conversation on this. It's a fascinating conversation. Um... Uh, Simon, but of course, the smartphone was pioneered and invented by the ultimate autocrat, Steve Jobs. But that's another conversation for another time, perhaps another book. Wonderful to talk to you, Simon. You are a remarkable, remarkably prolific writer, Barca, Chums. You just had a book out about George Blake. Congratulations. And final question. Um, one politician and one football manager, your favorites, who are they? My favorite football manager is still Johan Cruyff, despite everything. He was a genius. He was an You remember him as an, obviously you remember him as a player as well, but you remember him as much as a manager? He just saw everything different and he explained it. He explained it through the media. So he came in back to the Netherlands from the US when I was 12 years old. And his interviews just helped me understand everything I know about football I learned from listening to Cruyff. I think it's the same with Guardiola. I think it's the same with most people in Barcelona and in Holland of our generation. Everything we know, we learn from him. So he, I think, is 
I mean, Guardiola is a better manager, but Cruyff was the original. Guardiola is the pupil. And politician Nelson Mandela. I mean, my parents both came from South Africa. I never thought that apartheid would end without a civil war. And Mandela was a listening leader who convinced the whites to trust him and convinced the nation to follow him and had the humility to leave after four years as president. So those have been my two.